Thank you, Noel. That was a uh, favorite, Via Dolorosa. Remember going to Israel back in 2012 and walking that route that they say Jesus went and knowing that the traditional route's probably not the route, but all the same, just imagining that Jesus Christ carrying the cross that I should have been carrying, walking the road of suffering for me. Good worship moment. Appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, Kids, you can be dismissed for Children's Church, and uh, we are going to get ready. And and as I think of getting ready, I wanted to open today by talking to you about uh, something that happened a little over 20 years ago. That was our wedding. Michelle and I got married over 20 years ago, and at our reception afterwards, we had Two people share stories from our past that kind of like highlighted us, and then and then two people share stories from the present or you know the, that time frame of our lives, and then two people share predictions about our future, what we would be like someday. And I don't remember much about the past, and I don't remember much about the present stories, except for the one guy who went 20 minutes and he was supposed to go two. But I do remember, <laughs> I do remember the. Two people who made predictions about our future, both of them predicted, oh, you're going to have tons of kids and you're probably going to drive a bus, right? Because uh, you're just going to have that many. And, uh, and I thought, yeah, maybe. I hope I'm not driving a bus, though. And uh, we love kids, but I definitely didn't want to drive a bus. You know, as people look at you, they think about what life is going to be like you as they get to know you better. I could just see you doing this. I could see you being like this. What if he got a sneak peek from God himself about what your life was going to be like in a little bit down the road? Just pulled back the curtain and said, hey, this is going to happen. Right, that could be that could go a couple different ways, right? It could be really encouraging, especially if you're on the younger end of life. You're thinking about all the potential and, oh, who am I going to marry? I'd really like to know that. And, oh, uh, what kind of a job am I going to get? And where am I going to go? And what kind of adventure will I have? Oh, that would be awesome. Think about all of the potential, success, whatever that may be. It would be cool if God pulled back the curtain and we saw that. But he could pull back the curtain and go, this is what's going to happen, and it's not going to be very pretty. Got to get ready, because failure's coming. That could be really scary, right? It's a two-edged sword. Woohoo! And then the other side is, oh, no. Oh, oh no. Can I unsee that, please? As you think about those kinds of things, it'll set you up well for the passage that we're going to be dealing with today. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 31 is where we will be. And Jesus actually pulls back the curtain and gives the disciples a sneak peek into what their future holds in the next few hours, the next few days. And at first their response was, oh no, in fear. And then their response was, oh no, in determination. They would not do what Jesus said they were just going to do. They're going to fail. And they're going to deny that they're going to fail. They're going to deny that they're going to deny Jesus. But in the face of their failure that Jesus is predicting, 
they're going to find, and I want us to find, an all-knowing God. He's aware of all of the details, and an always loving God who's there to get us ready for our greatest successes and our most spectacular spiritual wipeouts. Now, today's story has about four movements, and we're going to cover them in three basic categories. I know you've got four on your outline sheet. We're going to cover them in about three basic categories, but the story goes like a roller coaster. We start with an up, and then there's a prediction of catastrophic failure, tremendous failure. It's a down. And then it's going to go back up with a a glorious worship moment, and then it's going to crash again with the prediction of failure. That's how the story goes. So let's go ahead and read it. Mark 14, starting in verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And they said to him, or he said to them, It is one of the twelve who's dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank it, and he said to them, This is the blood of of the covenant which is poured out for many for many this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many truly i say to you i will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when i drink it new in the kingdom of god and when they had sung a hymn they went out to the mount of olives and jesus said to them you will all fall away for it is written i will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered but after i am raised up I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Well, You got the big picture of the passage. What's going on in the situation? Jesus is giving them a sneak peek. But let's give a little bit of perspective here. You might remember, if you were here last week, that in verses 1 through 11, the religious leaders had been plotting two days before Passover 
for how they were going to arrest and kill Jesus. And they said, no, not till after the Passover. But Judas, probably prompted by Mary's extravagant gift of love, where she pours out this year's worth of, of uh, wages in this ointment, pours that on Jesus' head as an extravagant act of love. Maybe that was the physical catalyst that Satan used to plant this thought in Judas's mind. That's enough. What a waste. I, this is just wrong. And so he conspires with the religious leaders to, um, to hand over Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So that's all in the background. Nobody knows about that but Judas and Jesus, because he knows all things. What's in the foreground right here is that Passover is coming. It's time to get ready to sacrifice the lamb, to get the meal ready, and to celebrate this. And so in preparation, Jesus offers a small test of faith that reveals that he is in control of every detail of what's going on. Now that's in verses 12 through 16. We just read it, and I won't, I won't take time to read it again, but I want to talk through what happens. Because Jesus asks two disciples who are here unnamed, but in Luke they are Peter and John. He asks them to go into town and find a guy carrying a water pot, which seems really random, right? I'm not sure who I'm looking for, right? You walk into town and you're like, I have no idea. I thought this was really random, but turns out the ladies did that job. And so if you find a guy who's doing that job, he's going to stand out. Right? So, so they go into town, and they see this guy. They're supposed to meet him. At first I missed that detail, and I thought they, were just, they weren't supposed to talk to him. I thought they were just supposed to stalk him from distance. <laughs> but, uh, but that's not happening. He is going to find them, meet them, and uh, they're supposed to follow him and talk to the owner of the house that he was to lead them to. And then they were supposed to go in, they were supposed to ask this presumptuous-sounding question. Where's my guest room? Right, so if you come to my house and you're like, uh, where's my guest room? I'm going to say, I don't know. <laughs> but what's going on here? This is Passover. Jew Jerusalem swells to like five times the number of people who are normally there because all the nation's supposed to come and celebrate this holiday and so when people come in it wasn't like they would just rent a conference room people would open their homes as they had room available they were supposed to give culturally they would just give that room to people who asked and i thought well it still sounds kind of presumptuous except for look at what it says in verse 15 uh, he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready I think Jesus had a conversation with this guy ahead of time because the table's already set. It's ready, which means that the room has been cleaned thoroughly because this, this was all about removing any dirt, any potential of yeast, which was symbolic of sin. And so all of this has gone on. The room's ready. So Jesus has worked out all the details ahead of time and notice the prediction, you're going to find that one guy, he's going to lead you to this other guy, you're going to talk to him, and that's where you need to get the Passover meal ready. He's in, the, in control of all the details. And he's got the timing worked out perfectly, to a T. So they're supposed to go get the Passover ready. You ever wonder what they ate? 
I want to give you a brief flyover of the Passover. Passover was instructed by God in Exodus chapter 12 to be... Oh yeah, they don't, I don't want you to think of Passover as this kind of a celebration. It was more chilling at the table. Okay, uh, They're relaxing, reclining at the table. But Passover, as they're at the table, is celebrated as the Jewish equivalent of Independence Day. It's when they got set free from bondage in Egypt. And Passover is the memorial meal that they were to celebrate in memory of God freeing them and protecting them from the death angel who came. All of Israel was to take a lamb, slaughter it, and the blood was to be put on the doorposts and on the lintel, and then the death angel would see the blood, they would be protected from the death of the firstborn, and the angel would pass over. And then later that night, because Egypt did not put the blood on the doorpost, all of the firstborn animals, all of the firstborn of the people were killed. And God then took them out, freed them from the land of Egypt. And they went out. And this meal, this Passover celebration, was the kickoff celebration. It was opening day of this eight-day celebration called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, it would be cool if our Independence Day celebration was eight days. Theirs was, ours wasn't, but that's just the way it is. And this memorial meal kicked off this whole holiday. Now, this was already, this is also a mandatory celebration. Mandatory. Exodus 12 talks about how they had to do this annually on the 14th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar, which is the month of Nisan. Now, you can think of the vehicle, all right? Nisan, N-I-S-S-A-N. Can't even spell. I'm sorry. N I S S A N. <laughs> Take off one S, and now you have the Jewish first month, 14th Nisan. And uh, on in Jesus's day, that would have been Thursday. This year, Jews will celebrate it, and it'll be April 8th. Woohoo! My birthday. All right. So they're going to celebrate it. It was mandatory. They had to do this, and they needed to do this in a prescribed manner, laid out for them. They needed to do it. After sundown, they were to eat the same food every year. That's also part of the manner. Uh, they were to eat unleavened bread because they were to eat it in a rush, not wait for the bread to rise. They were to uh, drink the wine. They were to eat bitter herbs as a reminder of the bitterness of the 430 years of slavery that they had undergone. And so to... Um, Uh, to remember the bitterness they would eat things like parsley and they had this horseradish like sauce called caroset and i don't know if i pronounced that right but that's what it is all right and then they would also have roast lamb and so every year they were to eat this memorial meal in this prescribed manner and so this is the meal peter and john prepared and they apparently got the meal ready and then returned to jesus and the other ten disciples Because verse 17 says, when it was evening, he came with the twelve, not with the ten. So I'm guessing they prepared the meal. Then they went and said, hey, we got everything ready, ready when you are. They come in after sunset and they get ready to eat the meal. But in the middle of sitting down and enjoying this, this Passover celebration, Jesus drops a bombshell. 
this news. He pulls back the curtain and gives them a sneak peek so that they will get ready for the treachery or betrayal that is to come. Look again with me at verse 18. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? And you could just hear the echo go around the room. Is it I? Is it I? Like, who would do that? Is it, is it I? What, would I do that? So there's tons of self-doubt in here. It's, and Jesus said to them, it's one of the twelve, one who's dipping bread into the dish with me. Which makes me think of our modern day equivalent. You go to a Mexican restaurant, they give you chips and salsa, right? And you're sitting at the table, and all of a sudden you notice, hey, the person I'm sharing the dish with, they're double dipping. Oh no, right? So you're either calling for the waiter to get you another bowl, or you're reaching in front of the person next to you, which may be awkward, or you say, would you pass that over here, please? You just silently avoid that bowl, that's theirs, right? What's going on? Jesus is, is eating this celebratory meal with the disciples, and there are certain people around him. They're reclining at the table, but not everybody can reach the same dish. And Jesus explains, it's one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. And so this was one of the twelve, but one who was close enough to Jesus uh, that, that he was sharing the same dish with Jesus. That person is going to betray him. And as the Expositor's Bible Commentary points out, um, this, this idea of betraying a friend after eating a meal with him was and still is regarded as the worst kind of treachery in the Middle East. And so it only makes sense that the news caused deep sadness and sincere self-doubt. And you can see why they'd be sad, right? I mean, you would be too. The idea of discipleship was, was that I follow this master, this rabbi around. I learn everything I can from him, and my goal is to be exactly like him. So if I've done that for three years like the disciples have, he's somebody I know and love. The idea of betraying him is, just catches them totally off guard, and, and, and they may be thinking, how is that even possible? And so they ask, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Would I do that? I want to pause here, and I want us to ask the question, what drives that question? Is it I? I think it's fear. The fear that I could do that. Or what if I did do that? Do you ever ponder that question for yourself? What if I did do something as heinous as what Judas was about to do? What if I did commit some absolutely horrendous crime, the sin against God? You fill in the blank for what, what seems most heinous or treacherous to you. But what if you did? How would you respond? Could rattle you with self-doubt. So the disciples are filled with sadness and filled with self-doubt. 
And maybe you, like me, struggle at times with doubt. How's God responding to me in light of what I just thought or what I just said or what I just did? And maybe you constantly wonder if you've done enough good for God. You feel like you have to do good to make up for the bad that you are going to do or you you have done. Or you wonder if your failures or your, your secret sins that nobody but the closest person to you on earth knows about. What if that's found out? And you start to wrestle with this doubt. Where do you go? What drives that? Well, in one of the most insightful articles that I've read recently, called The Proud Pursuit of Humility, the author Greg Wilson points out, we struggle with self-doubt because of pride in our hearts. Now, it doesn't appear to be pride on the surface, but it's pride disguised as humility. And it starts to become obvious that it's pride because things start going well and we point the finger of credit out. It it was everybody else, really. It was nothing. I I didn't do anything, right? And so there's this, this false humility. You know, I just got lucky. You know, it's really all about everybody else and what they did. Ah, shucks. Even a blind squirrel can find a nut. The finger points out. But then when the scenario turns and things start falling apart, the finger points in, oh, I'm a terrible person. I should have never even tried. That's just not my thing. I'll never get that. Whatever, it's my fault. And the problem is that we're stuck on a horizontal focus. It's all them or it's all me. And that's pride speaking. A masked pride, a disguised pride, but still pride coming out of our hearts. Instead of seeing God as sovereign, all-knowing, and gracious and loving, in spite of my failures, I base my worth not on His unconditional love and acceptance of me, but on how I performed. Or I think He's angry at me because of how I didn't perform. And I doubt that God could ever forgive a sin like that. Self-doubt. Now, all of this is in the context of Judas's betrayal that's about to come. And uh, what Judas did was heinous. It's despicable. And Jesus says it's so bad that it would be better if he hadn't even been born. But I want you to think about how far the grace of God reaches when we fail, when we think about our lackluster spiritual performance, can God forgive you if you do the worst thing that you can imagine? Well, not only can he forgive, there's hope here. He already predicted that it was going to happen, so he already knows about it. It's not like he's caught off guard, like we're caught off guard by our own sin. He already knows about it. So just relax. And if you look in John chapter 13, this is the same scenario. And what's Jesus doing? He's expressing his love to the disciples by humbly serving them and washing their feet. And that includes Judas' feet. He washed them all. He loved them all. So if God already knows about it in advance, and he's already 
loved them in spite of the treachery that he knows is going to happen, then you don't need to be racked by self-doubt and by fear that, oh, I've done something that God could never forgive. Don't let the pride in your heart deceive you and think that, that you're beyond hope and help of God's grace and His love. In fact, there is nothing that can take you out of God's love. And I want to ask you to read this passage with me. Would you read this out loud, please? Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that awesome? Don't let pride, which shows up in self-doubt, keep you from going to the Savior because He knows it all already and He loves you still. And you can't be separated from His love by your, by your worst failure. And you don't have to earn His love by your top-of-the-line top spiritual performance. Well, pride shows up in the disciples again, and we're going to jump in your outline to point number four, because self-doubt quickly morphs into unashamed self-confidence there in verses 27 through 31. There Jesus told them, verse 27, you will all fall away, and then he quotes Scripture, I will strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. Verse 29, how's Peter respond? Even though they all fall away, I don't know if he pointed to the disciples or if it was really awkward or what was going on, but he was the most vocal. He just speaks right up. Even if they all fall away, I won't. Right? This is his, oh no, I won't kind of response. And Jesus now goes beyond Scripture, proving that again, he knows all details. And he says, Peter, there's going to be a rooster crowing two times. And you know what? You're going to deny, deny me three times before that rooster's done crowing twice. And Peter's like, absolutely not. Hear Peter's best intentions speaking here. Right? This is his best intentions. But here, um, they need this reminder from Scripture so that their foolish self-confidence will be exposed. Jesus has to get them ready for their failure. Not just be focused on Judas's failure, but be focused on their own. And it's not like it's going to change what's going to happen. But when they think back on this, they're going to remember they have an all-knowing Savior who predicted this in advance and still was gentle and loving with them. And they're going to need this. So Jesus is getting them ready for their denial. They... They all promised to, um, to be loyal to Jesus to the death. So were they? Were they? I mean, we know the end of the story, right? They did exactly what the Scriptures said they would do. They did exactly what Jesus said they would do. And the Scriptures are right. But here, their self-confidence is just foolish. And self-confidence is just the flip side of self-doubt. Self-confidence is pride without the disguise. When things go well, the finger points in, look at me, look at what I did, look at what I know, look at what I have, look at what my money did. Mm -hmm. It's all about me. 
right? The mask is ripped off. And then watch out, because when the things go south, when things fall apart, a person who's proud and shows that with self-confidence, they're going to blame everybody else. And, uh, and again, the problem is that they're stuck in a horizontal focus. It's all them or it's all me. And the sovereignty of an all-knowing and a good and loving God is missed in the whole situation. And I want to encourage us not to fall into this trap. I want, us to encourage, I want to encourage you by asking the question, where's God in the picture of your success and failure? Does he know about it all? Do you, do you remember that? Do you remember that he loves you? The disciples are full of pride. And what pride does, ladies and gentlemen, is that it blinds our eyes to the obvious things that God knows. We just don't see it. We miss what God's trying to tell us, and we're not ready. And what I want to encourage you to do is to believe what the Scriptures say about us and our heart condition, that it is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Believe the Scriptures' description of yourself more than you believe your own best intentions more than you believe how good you are. I want to encourage you, when the Scriptures say this is true about you, take it to heart. Humble yourself. Confess the pride that's in you that would rise up in self-doubt or rise up in self-confidence and just say what the Word of God has to say is true. And if you're not yet convinced, well, just live a little bit. Experience a little bit of failure and you realize... Scriptures were right on. Believe what the Scriptures say, that our hearts are deceitful above all things and they are cursed with sin, depraved. We can't understand ourselves as well as God understands ourselves. And we desperately need to reject the pop culture uh, psychological advice that, is, that says to a self-doubter or that says to a self-confident person, it's good to believe in yourself. You need to be more positive. We need more positivity. You need to reject negativity. Because when the Scriptures are speaking to us about our condition and they give an accurate description, we need to listen. Otherwise, we're going to set ourselves up for some disastrous, catastrophic spiritual failures. And I want to encourage you to simply pray the prayer of humility that says, God, please forgive me for my pride and deliver me by your grace from both self-doubt and self-confidence. I encourage you to do that. But let's get back to the text because we have some excellent things to wrap up with. In our last movement that we're going to look at in verses 22 through 26, Jesus is going to get them ready for the coming kingdom. And he's going to take some ancient Passover symbols and he's going to give them personal, fresh, present significance in himself. In himself. All right? Jesus started with the unleavened bread as he starts um, refreshing these ancient symbols. Read verse 22 with me. 
And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. Now this is clearly a metaphor. What's Jesus do? He hands them the bread. And so the bread didn't become his literal flesh, as some would teach. He's right in the room with them. It's clearly a metaphor. But this becomes his body, a metaphor of his body, a representation of his body that would be sacrificed for them. And then verse 23 says he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And we'll stop right there. So they all drink of it. They share a common cup. Aren't you glad we don't do that right now? Uh, But again, this is a metaphor. And as uh, as much as we would just think of this as a memorial meal that we celebrate when we have the the crackers representing the bread uh, or the body of Jesus, and then we have the juice representing his blood, the cup. Uh, This this is far more significant to the Jews. And we won't turn to the passage for sake of time, but I want you to, in the margin of your notes, just write down Exodus 6, 6, and 7, because we need to understand how the Jews celebrated Passover in order to understand the fullness of what's being explained here. Jesus is getting them ready for the coming kingdom. And the way Jews would celebrate the Passover was with four cups. And, and so the first cup that they would drink together was called the cup of sanctification. And in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, there's a phrase in there that talks about uh, being set apart. All right? So this cup is set apart or sanctified, which is what set apart means, Um, meaning this night is different. This night is unique. This night is different from any other night that we celebrate, that we have during the year. And so they would start off at the beginning of the celebration with the cup of sanctification. Cup number two would come much later in the meal, but there's this very structured system and practice that they would do of having the first cup, eating, and then later they would come back and they would celebrate the second cup, drinking this together, communion together around the second cup, which is the cup of praise, or Hallel. Now, Hallel, you may go, what in the world's that? Finish that last word with Ouya, right? Hallelujah, right? The cup of praise, Hallelujah is praise. And so, Psalms 113 and 114 are the songs that they would have sung as the songs of praise at this point in time, praising God for the Passover. Praising God for what He did to set them free, delivering them from death, delivering them from Egypt. This is the cup of praise. They would celebrate that. But what we just read about in verse 23 isn't the first cup or the second cup. What Jesus does is he takes a cup and he says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. He's given them the third cup. That's the cup of redemption. To be redeemed means to be bought back out of slavery. Jesus has bought them out of slavery like he did with Israel back in Egypt. He bought them out of Egypt's slavery. Now, through His blood, He gives fresh significance buying them out of the slave market of sin. They're redeemed. They're set free. 
this is the cup. And what they were to do every year from this time forward was to remember that Jesus' blood is what has redeemed them. Jesus has set them free. And that is worth worshiping God for. But I said there were four cups, and the fourth cup is the cup of acceptance. This comes, uh, we've been dealing with different phrases in Exodus 6.6, but now we get to verse 7. And this comes from the phrase, I will take you to me for a people. I will accept you as my people is, is another way that we could phrase this and say this. So here Jesus gives one more piece of significance to this meal. And he, he says in verse 25, he's not going to drink. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until when? Until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So, has Jesus Christ come back to set up his eternal kingdom and to reign yet? No. We are his people, but he's not yet invited us or accepted us in. He's not brought his kingdom to us. And he's telling them, I'm not drinking that cup yet. Because you may be my people, but my kingdom, my eternal kingdom is not yet set up. And I'm going to hold out until the day I do come back and accept you into my eternal kingdom based on your response to my redemption that I'm going to do on the cross. And he's holding out on that. And so in withholding this last cup, he's offering us hope. There's a confident expectation that Jesus is coming back. He's not done yet. He's coming to set up his kingdom, and we who have put our faith in Jesus Christ and been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb are going to be able to reign with him. And that's a woo-hoo, all right? Pull back that curtain a little bit farther, Jesus. I want to see that one more. That is exciting. Unless you're not ready for Jesus to come back. Now, I'd hope to talk to you about the hymn which Jesus is going to give go over as they sing, it says they, in verse, I think, 26, they sing a hymn and then they go down to the Mount of Olives. I'd hope to talk to you about the last couple of Hallel Psalms, but there was one passage from Psalm 118, uh, the last four Hallel Psalms were Psalm 115 through 118. I was going to take just a small section. For the sake of time, I decided I was going to skip it. But in that hymn, it promised present hope and help for, um, for his disciples. It's loaded with significance about the salvation of God and the strong right arm that God had. But I want you to think about what's going to happen because here in just a little bit, Jesus is going to the cross. And when we say a little bit, we mean hours. He's going to be betrayed by Judas in the garden. He's going to be arrested He's going to be given this kangaroo trial, this mock, uh, this pretend justice where they, they go through all the right motions. And then they're going to falsely accuse him. They're going to put him to death on trumped up charges. And it's going to look like evil has won. It's going to look like the opposite of what Psalm 118 talks about, that the strong right arm that brings victory it's going to look like that arm got broken as Jesus is killed on the cross and then laid limp in the tomb. 
It's going to look like it's over, and it's going to look like he lost. But that is just the beginning of deliverance. As he's gone into that tomb three days later, Sunday morning, he's rising again. And I can just imagine the arm going, We win! Right? And he sets free a host of captives. This is the redemption that Jesus offers. This is the strong right arm that looked like it was broken, but is now alive and is motivated by breathing lungs, by a heart that's pumping blood. Jesus lives, and He lives eternally. And those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ can know that they will be with Him in eternity. And if you're not there yet, the Scriptures say, if you will admit that you are a sinner and put your trust in Jesus Christ and what He did for you on the cross, you too can be saved. I got, I got testimonies. This past Wednesday, we had three sixth graders who called on the name of the Lord to be saved. Can I get a witness? This is good stuff, right? I would love it if you were here this morning and you, you realize I've committed a lot of sin against God. But I'm starting to see my Savior who knows all of my sin and who has loved me anyway, and you realize I can call on the name of the Lord today and I can be saved. If that's you, I don't, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what your spiritual condition is. God does. But we would love to talk with you more. Or you could just pray and ask God to forgive you of your sins and to make you his child. And you will be saved. We began our time this morning asking if God could give you a sneak peek into your future, would you be ready for what's to come? I think we all have great intentions about how good we're going to do for God. But what I'm reminded of this morning and what I want to encourage you with is to be ready. Because if God were to pull back the curtain and you were to see spectacular failure, Instead of glorious success, you'd still be secure in who you are in Christ. In my college years, I was given an unfortunate nickname. First unfortunate nickname I ever received was in third grade. I got the nickname Garbage Disposal. Because I was the kid who would be like, you want that? I'll eat that. You're not going to eat it. But in college, I got the nickname Cherub. And that was the worst nickname I could have ever gotten. I got the nickname because the guys in the dorm couldn't figure out what I did wrong. And I was just trying to do what was right. But they called me Cherub because they told the RD, he never does anything wrong. And it wasn't true. Obviously, I'm a sinner. But that message subtly got into my head and became a prison for me. It became a dungeon for me. I became trapped in the pride of thinking I had to keep up this image of perfection. and became very self-confident. It was horrible. Seeking to do better. Always trying. Always self-doubting. But God in His mercy 
several years later, freed me from that trap. As he showed me Ephesians 4:22, the depravity of my own heart, and I began to realize I am who I am, and I am where I am because God, in his all-knowing and all-loving way, has shown me grace. That's it. I've lived too long in pride. But it's a battle I still struggle with. And maybe you do too. I want to encourage you as you leave today, as you wrestle with pride in your own heart, whether it shows up in self-doubt or too much self-confidence, that you would begin to put your trust in the grace of God and in the love of God rather than your spiritual performance or to feel like you are an absolute failure because of your lack of spiritual performance. Pray that God would deliver you from all forms of pride. I want to encourage you to get ready by trusting in who God is, the all-knowing God. Trust in the always-loving God. He'll guide you through, like he did the disciples, through the unknown details of life, and you can trust him and take life one step at a time. He'll help you to face the unknowns of the future with total confidence in the promises of Scripture. And if you will confess your sin, you can walk before him in confidence. You may just be a sinner, but you're a sinner who's saved by grace. And I give you a whole new hope to keep on living. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a song that will, Lord willing, help you to say, praise God for what he's done for me. And he will carry you through each step of the way. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father in heaven, I want to thank you for who you are. Because as an all-knowing God, you see every failure that I have and will commit in the failure of everyone in this room. But God, we come to you today not because we're failures, but because of the perfection of Jesus and every good gift is ours through faith in Him. And we can have His righteousness. We can have His perfection. So God, humble us and keep us from thinking more of ourselves than we are. And help us to be able to say what Jesus Christ has done for me is going to be all of my confidence. And I pray that our boast would be in Him and in Him alone. Change us that we might represent You well and that You might be glorified and not us. It's in Your precious Son's name I pray. Because the Lord has redeemed us, we can sing, it is well with my soul, whatever comes our way. And we can look forward to the day when he will return. Let's sing this hymn together, it is well with my soul. And if you're able to stand, let's stand up together. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea bellows roll, Where?
Lord haste to thee. And Lord haste to thee. When my face shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend, even so. Sunday. God bless you.